Our scripture reading comes from Philippians 1, 18 through 30. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear Lord, be with Andrew today. <coughs> And may the words that he speak be the words that you have given to him for our benefit so that those of us who do not have a relationship with you will be called and even today might be saved. And so that those of us who are your adopted sons and daughters, we can realize the privilege of that. And your spirit can dwell in us so that uh, that you shine forth from us so that when others see us, they see you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Philippians is full of well-known verses, uh, well-known passages. Um, we certainly will come to them throughout the book, but today we come to one of the most well-known, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is a, a well-known passage that has meant a lot to a lot of different people. Uh, there's a whole lot in this passage that just intertwines and, and impacts our li life in so many ways. You know, one of the things that I try to do is pay attention to what's going on in the world as you're studying the, the scriptures and, you know, just saturated with the scriptures. And so it was hard for me to miss this week uh, the story of a 51-year-old Colombian woman. Her name is Maria Campo. Colombia, a little while ago, decriminalized the act of euthanasia. And so today is the day that she has selected to be euthanized, uh, though she is not terminal 
in her disease. Uh, she does have ALS. Uh, it's in the beginning stages, and she's looking down the road, and she's saying, there is nothing good that is going to come of this. This is going to be a, a slow and painful death, so I would rather uh, be euthanized now and avoid any pain and suffering that I might have down the road. In her words, God does not want to see me suffer. I believe that no one, no parent, wants to see their children suffer. I don't share that with you lightly. I've been very grieved and have been praying for her, and I think we should all pray for her and, and for her family as well as we go throughout this day. But the reason why I share it with you is that what we're talking about today when we come to Philippians 1, 18 and 30 is, is the real stuff of life. Like, what does it mean to suffer? What does it mean to live as Christ, to die as gain? Would that be a, uh, an argument for uh, euthanasia in this particular case? And I want to walk through that with you this morning to look at both what Paul means and what Paul doesn't mean. Uh, throughout the book of Philippians, as we've said, there are a number of things, but a few in particular that really stand out to us. You know, one is uh, Paul's overarching commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, he mentions it so many times just in this first chapter of Philippians over and over again. He talks about being worthy of the gospel, partakers of the gospel, enlivened by the gospel. I mean, he just goes over and over about this good news of Jesus and how it has become so central to him. And we're certainly going to see that again as we go through these verses today. The other thing that he talks about is his partnership, and you see on the front, that's our little theme for... Um, for this series is partners in the gospel, a partnership in the gospel. And so Paul is sharing this in context of community with these Philippians, uh, in context of his relationship, his love for them, and, and he wants to bump up against all of these uh, these important topics. And he's doing it today in a way that we see him do later as well in Philippians. He wants to talk to them about what it means to live as citizens of a heavenly country. Some of you are familiar with Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, where he says, our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. It's not so obvious, at least in English, in uh, chapter 1, but if you look at 20, verse 27, Paul says this, only, you know, this most important thing, this is the number one thing, uh, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Paul is using actually a political metaphor. That phrase, let your manner of life be worthy of, is actually a word about citizenship. 
uh, worthy of the gospel of Christ, live in the Roman colony of Philippi as worthy citizens of, the, of your heavenly homeland. That would be another way to translate it. You can look at the New Living Translation and some other ways, uh, other translations that are capture that idea of citizenship. And, and what Paul is saying here is we have an heavenly citizenship that has earthly ramifications. And so I want to just use that as our frame this morning to look at these verses and to seek to understand what Paul is saying and what God is inviting us into. Only uh, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Again, Paul is reiterating what is most important to him. And that's really the key for us, too. There are many things that are important in life, but only one thing can be most important. Uh, and only one thing should be most important. And you see, for Paul, it is Christ. I mean, look at this uh, sequence of statements that he makes here beginning in, in 19. He says, I, knew, I know through your prayers and the help of the Spirit that this will turn out for my deliverance. Here he's talking about being on trial in Rome, waiting for his... Uh, day in court, so to speak, before Caesar, and he's trusting in the Spirit of Christ to be his deliverance. Um, and, and why is that? He says, I have a full courage, now as always, that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ. But even if I die, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, verse 23. That is the far better thing. But to remain in the flesh is more uh, necessary on your account, uh, so that you might have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And then even in verse 29, he says, it's been granted for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Over and over and over again, he is saying that Christ is central in all that I do, that he is honored in my body, that my life is lived for Christ, that when I die, that I die in Christ, that you may glory in Christ, that even in the sufferings that we go through in life, we go through them as partakers with Christ, uh, Christ as one who suffered. Only one thing is most important in your life, and only one thing should be, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we think about it, we, we realize there's a lot of really good things in our life. You know, we, we have our relationships. We, we have uh, your very best friend, your husband, your wife, your, your children. You, you have these relationships that are so important and foundational for who we are, how we express ourselves. But they should not be more important than Christ. Christ has got to be center in our life. You have a job. You have a calling. 
We've been talking about that, you know, the last couple of years, the last couple of months, and these things are really important. Uh, whatever it is that you do, uh, you, your place in this world is crucial, but your job, your calling should not be more important than Christ. Following Him is the most important vocation that you have. Uh, he is central to who we are. We, we live in a country uh, where, where we're proud to be citizens. Uh, we look out around the world and, and we realize the blessings that we have. We, we celebrated that in our family this past summer as Moses became a citizen and just really gave me pause to reflect on that and, and to think about something that I've just taken for granted my whole life because I, I was born into citizenship. But when you, you think about the, the blessings that they are, but they're not more important than Christ. And, and what Paul is saying here is that the life, death, resurrection of Christ, this good news of the gospel, which we are partners in, which we are partakers of, this is the most important thing. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Only let your heavenly citizenship define who you are and how we live our lives. And one of the things that I think is so interesting is that as Paul is talking about this in his life, uh, he, he moves over into the place where he no longer has life. Uh, when, when he dies, when he passes from this life to the next, and he says Christ doesn't become less central at that point. In fact, Christ becomes more central, for to die is gain or profit. He uses a financial term there. When, when we die, that is gain for us. Now, there are several things that we need to just be clear about here, especially in terms of what Paul is not saying. Paul, Paul is not making some sort of death wish here. Uh, you know, Paul certainly has been on the brink of death a number of times in his life. He is writing to the church in Philippi from the Roman prison. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He, I mean, he, he knows the issues of life and death. And he even goes on in this passage to say, I, I hope that I am delivered for your sake. So he's, he's, not, he's not claiming some sort of death wish, and death should never be an easy way out of our sufferings, at least not one that we can choose. So Paul is not leading us in that direction. Paul is also not saying that death is not something that we should grieve. Uh, look at chapter 2. Verse 27, where he's talking about Epaphroditus, Addison referenced this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Epaphroditus, when he came to Paul, was ill, near to death. But, but listen to how he says this, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, 
by saving him, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Uh, so, God's mercy was delivering him from death. Uh, God's mercy was that his loved one, this one that he cared for, was able to continue in life, and if he had died, there would be sorrow upon sorrow. So, this is one of the things that we have to just work through. While it's true, Paul says, to die is gain. That when we think about our loved ones that pass away into glory, uh, there is a gain. I was talking with um, a member of our congregation this week whose father passed away last Sunday, and she said, he is in heaven now before the face of the Lord. She, she recognized the gain that her father had, but she said, she misses him. I can't tell you how much I miss him. Uh, there is that sorrow upon sorrow. Both of those things are true. Uh, and, and we have to be careful as we're walking through those that we don't get pushed on either side of the pole. You know, on the one side, uh, we have no hope. We, we can't see that, that for the believer, death is gain. On the other side, uh, that we have no sorrow and we don't realize that the last enemy is death. But Paul here is so confident uh, he's so confident in his citizenship, in his Christ, in belonging to him, that he can say, to die is gain. To die is gain. I have full courage, he says. Uh, I have full assurance. Uh, Paul is so rooted in Christ that even the enemy death cannot cannot take him off the spot. Uh, it cannot uh, make him tremble in its face. Now, that's really something for us. You know, to, to die well, I think it's one of the great gifts that we have to give our culture. You know, as we think about the, the things that are, are going on in our world, how, how, do we, how do we navigate sickness? How do we navigate disease? How do we navigate life and death? For the Christian, we have a confidence that goes beyond medicine. We have a confidence that goes beyond our own flesh and blood. We have a confidence that is rooted in our citizenship in heaven. It's rooted in our belonging to Him. It's rooted in all of the resources that God has given us, continues to give, it, give us, pours into us. We, we have this hope that enables us with Paul sitting in a Roman prison, literally hanging by a thread in terms of his life, and he can say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. On the one hand, uh, I'd, rather, I'd rather die, I'd rather go and to be face to face with the Lord, but on the other hand, I know it's important that my life be lived out according to the purposes that the Lord has for me that I continue to walk forward in faith. One writer 
Alec Motier puts it this way. He says, we could paraphrase and extend his thought by saying, life means Christ to me as I more fully know and love and serve him day by day. Death means Christ to me when I shall finally possess and eternally enjoy him. Paul really saw the heights. You know, Brian talked about further up and further in. Uh, I don't know about conversations with me or Addison, but I do know uh, this conversation with the Apostle Paul uh, pulls us further up and further in for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That is your heavenly citizenship united to Christ. And some of us, you know, physically speaking, are closer to that, uh, humanly speaking, are closer to that day of death than others, whereas uh, in reality, each one of us is just moments away. Uh, we, we don't know when that is. That's why it's so important that only, only Christ be the most important thing in our life. And notice then, secondly, how it, how it shapes our lives as we go forward. You know, Paul is saying, this is, this is who I am. I am a heavenly citizen. And, and citizenship was so important in Philippi. Philippi, you remember, is a Roman colony. Uh, the fact that they were Roman citizens meant they had rights and privileges, and, and they played those things out to the max. Uh, it was a big deal in those days. You remember one time when Paul was captured, uh, Paul, who had rights as a Roman by birth, uh, you know, the person who captured him said, I paid for my citizenship. I mean, people went out of their way to get citizenship. So they understand this metaphor. And what Paul is saying is you have it. In Christ, you have this thing that is so important. Now let it shape the way you live your life. When you have all of the resources in the world... It shapes the way you live. Some of you know that. I mean, if you, uh, depending on your accessibility to the world's goods, uh, your access to the world's goods depends on, you know, how you treat things. If you scrimp and scrape and save and then you, you buy this thing, you, you treat it very carefully. Whereas if you know it is easily replaced, you've got more finances, you, you may treat it differently. You may have more confidence to try things. You know, how, what you believe you possess makes a huge difference in how you live your life. And we see that with Paul. He knows that he possesses the only thing that is needful. He possesses the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at how it shapes his life. I want to give you three things here. Uh, and they all start with S. How, do, how about that? Uh, the first is he serves. The second, stand firm. And finally, the last one is suffer. Uh, serving, verses 24 to 26. Notice what Paul says. He, he is unequivocal. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. I'm hard-pressed. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. You know, this is realized gospel living in the presence of Jesus. I know that this is far better. Yet, what does he say? 
But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you you all for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again." When Paul knows that his citizenship is so secure, when Christ is all in all to him, it changes the way he lives his life. It's now no longer about him, but it's about his friends. It's about these loved ones, these partakers of grace, these partners in the gospel. It would be far better for me to depart and to be with Christ, but... I will remain on your account. I want my life uh, to be lived for you. My rights are not the most important thing uh, in my universe, but living my life, laying down my life for you is so important. This is one of the things, of course, where we look at the English translation we have and we say, why do they put that break there at chapter 2? Because what's going to go on and we'll look at in depth next week is, is Paul saying, let this mind be in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking on the form of a servant, becoming obedient, obedient to death on a cross. Paul is saying, you know, I, 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 it would be so much better for me to depart and to be with Christ, but, but I want to serve you. I want your faith to grow. I want you to progress in your faith, to see that, that growth. I want your joy to increase. And, and I do that by laying down my desires, my joys, in order that your desires and your joys might be realized and fulfilled. Why? How, how does Paul do this? Why does he do it? What's the motivation? What's the enablement? It's Christ. He has the ultimate picture of what it means to self-donate your life, to use the term that Miroslav Volf likes to use, the self-donation of our life on behalf of another. It's Jesus Christ. He, he who was equal to God did not consider this equality with God something to be grasped. He gave up all of his rights, all of his privileges in order to make himself nothing. To save people who were still in their rebellion against him while we were still sinners, Christ gave himself for us. What does it look like to serve in this way? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know because I'm not very good at it. Uh, you know, it, but it might be little things. It might be loving your spouse, serving your kids. It, it might be turning off your favorite television show. It might be uh, putting down your book to listen. It, it might be taking time out of what you want to do in order to serve somebody else. It might be something big. Uh, it might find yourself, you know, 
out of your comfort zone, moving to a different neighborhood. It might find yourself taking in people who are very different than you, stepping in to uh, relationships with, with people who you are prone or even, you know, born to dislike or to distrust. I, I don't know what it looks like, but I know it comes out of only Christ. When Christ is the most important thing in our life, uh, we serve, we, we donate ourselves after the manner and after the image of Christ with His help. Paul, Paul doesn't pretend that he can do it on his own. Look at verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit, of Jesus Christ. This will turn out for my deliverance. Paul knows that we do this in community, praying for one another. It's why we uh, emphasize prayer in, in so many different contexts in your C groups. Wednesday nights, the opportunity to come together and pray for and with one another. It is so crucial. and we, we will never lay down our lives for somebody else uh, if we are not being prayed for, if we are not seeking the throne of God. Two other things I want to mention for you. Uh, secondly, you see, um, you know, in terms of what it means to live out this earthly, call, earthly calling, uh, that you stand firm. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come to see you or remain away, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. That should probably be capitalized there. He doesn't mean spirit of mind or even unity of heart. I, he means the Holy Spirit. We're standing firm in the Holy Spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So here Paul changes his metaphor a little bit, and what, what he's saying is, I know that this kind of heavenly citizenship is going against the grain in Philippi. So Philippi had all this great stuff with regards to the Roman colony, right? They had the privileges, they had the rights of citizenship, they had all of this stuff, but they also were inundated with all of the paganism of Rome. They were inundated with the emperor worship. They were inundated with, uh, with Jupiter and Juno and, you know, all of the gods and goddesses that make up the pantheon of Rome. They were there in full force. And if you stood against them, you know, in your guild, you would lose your job. If you stood against the emperor, you could lose your head or be thrown into the Colosseum with all of its wild beasts. So when, when Paul is saying we live this manner of life, he's saying, understand, it's going to be different. It, it, you're you're going to become weird. You're going to look different than all the other fish in the sea, and you're going to be swimming 
in the opposite direction. And so now he goes to this Roman military mat metaphor. Some of you have seen sort of the phalanx maneuver uh, where they, you know, they put their shields in front of them and they, you know, stand side by side protecting one another against the wiles uh, of the enemy, against the forces of the enemy that would come against them. And, and Paul is saying, understand <coughs> that you're going to have to do this. You are going to have to stand side by side against the enemy. When you have a belief in Christ as Lord that counters the belief in the emperor as Lord, you're going to look different. You know, Paul, so some of it is going to be very obvious there. I've mentioned a few of the things, the cult of the emperor. But Paul, in other places, if you just, you know, move over a couple pages in your Bible to Colossians 2 verse 8, he, he says, let no one take you captive by hollow and deceptive philosophies or traditions that depend, or hollow and deceptive philosophies that depend on human traditions. Uh, but in all things, you know, be transformed by the knowledge of who Christ is. And sometimes we have a hard time when we talk about standing firm, like what does that look like in our life? Like we're free to gather here. We're not worried about anybody coming in and, and killing us because we are in a, 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 you know, in a country that is radically counter-Christian. Other Christians have to worry about that. We, we don't have to worry about that. But, but we still have to stand firm. And a lot of it has to do with the hollow and deceptive philosophies of, of this world. You know, I, I think about this, this woman in Colombia. I, I think about the practice of decriminalizing euthanasia. There is a fundamental philosophy about life that is different than the biblical philosophy about life. You know, from beginning to end, we, we believe that our life is not our own, that we do not have the right to take our life, uh, no matter what, what sort of, of gain we may perceive in it. That, that's not our right. Our, our bodies belong to the Lord. They are a gift from the Lord. And when we stand for that, we stand against the hollow and deceptive philosophies that set themselves up against the, you know, against this idea, against this scriptural idea. And, and Paul says, stand firm. Don't let yourselves be taken away. Know your scriptures. Know what it is that God has called you to. Get yourself side by side. You can't do it by yourself. You need to link arms with other folks, and you need to stand firm because of what the Lord calls us to. The third thing that he says, and I'm sure many of you read this uh, or your ears perked up at reading this, um, Paul says, uh, it has been granted to you that you should suffer uh, it was granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I now hear and still have. 
many respects, this is flowing out of that, that second idea of standing firm. Uh, Paul is saying, you know, you, this standing firm is going to cost you. It's going to cost you your job. Uh, it may cost you friends. It's going to cost you your popularity. It's going to cost you success. It's going to cost you a, a lot of other things maybe that the world values. But you, it is something that is granted to you that you suffer for the sake of Christ, that you suffer along with Christ. Um, and again, this is just so different than, than how we think. I, I do think that Paul isn't talking here primarily about sort of generalized suffering that is in the world because we live in a fallen world. Uh, so he's, he's not necessarily talking about disease. He's not necessarily um, even talking about broken relationships. I do, however, think that how we approach those is where the battle is, right? Because we all, you know, we all experience the brokenness of the world. So are we approaching it through a hollow and deceptive philosophy? For instance, forgiveness. I'm going to talk more about this in just a minute. Forgiveness is a biblical principle. It, it is not a, you know, it's not a principle that's all throughout the world. There's a lot of people in America, there's a lot of people in other cultures that think forgiveness is a sign of weakness. Yeah, that if you're hurt, you hurt them back. Uh, and so when we, when we go through a betrayal, when we go through a, a type of suffering, uh, you know, how we do that is, is a gift from God. God says it's granted to you that you have the opportunity to believe Christ at this moment. You have the opportunity to be a partaker with Him in His suffering. I mean, you think about that. When Christ was on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Suffering is, is, is contrary to, you know, Western ideology. It, it, it's not to be avoided at all costs, but we are to see it uh, as part of what God is inviting us into. One writer puts it this way, the net result is that the content of Paul's explanation is something that contemporary Christians hear, uh, we hear reluctantly, either out of guilt uh, that so much of our life looks so little uh, like this that, we're f that we fear that um, it might someday really be true or out of fear that it might someday be really true for us. So two ideas that make this hard for us. One, we don't really face the suffering and so we feel guilty about it. Or secondly, well, maybe this will be true and I'm not ready for it. How do we do this? The key is to return to Paul's emphasis for the sake of Christ. Our tendency is to focus on the suffering. What is needed is a radical paradigm shift towards Christ as God's ultimate paradigm for us. Through death on a cross, He not only saved us, but modeled for us a way of dealing with the opposition by loving them to death. If we see our opportunity to engage with our suffering as an opportunity to partake in the mind of Christ, in the heart of Christ, uh, it's going to change how we engage, how we deal with these things.
Paul says your heavenly citizenship is the most important thing. And it will change the way that you live your life. You will serve, stand firm. You will suffer all for the sake of Christ. One of the other places or stories that I, I read this week was a story of Joseph Keegan. He's a, he's a writer, uh, began as an atheist, was pretty, pretty devout in his atheism. Uh, he liked the Greek philosophers. He's a guy who had the life of the mind. He had a very complicated relationship with his father. He was estranged for them for years upon years upon years, stretching all the way back to his adolescence. And then one day he got the call that his father was at the end of his life. His heart disease was about to take him. And so he went out to visit him and he died five years later. Uh, and as Joseph was processing this relationship, he, he realized so much angst in his life around his relationship with his dad. I'm sure some of you can relate to that. And, and he somehow came to the conclusion that the only way forward was forgiveness. And so he began to look for, you know, examples, calls, instructions, what would this be like to really forgive? First, he looked to Greek philosophy, then to Buddhism before he finally arose, uh, finally arrived at Christianity. The consensus among the Greeks, it seemed, is that forgiveness is an ethical activity grounded in care towards one's soul. If forgiveness is morally valuable, it's valuable because anger gums up the gears to one's own flourishing and distracts one from more noble pursuits like being a citizen, all of these other things. So he's basically saying, the Greeks were telling me that forgiveness was selfishly motivated. Like you forgive because your bitterness is hurting you, which is true. Uh, but he wasn't satisfied that. He looked at Buddhism. He was even more disappointed in which he said the specific, specificity and particularity of another person disappears altogether in Buddhism and is subsumed into a system that one carefully maintains like a rock garden. You know, your personality, this actual relationship that I have I, as a person, with my dad as a person, it's all gone. And, and it's just this broad nebulous, and we just sort of maintain this sort of thing. So finally, he, he came to Christianity, and he was not excited about it. He believed it was too good to be true because it papered over the real ugliness of the world with a happy message about hope and love. Maybe some of you are in that same position, like this forgiveness, living, you know, in Christ. It's too good to be true. But reading the Gospel of Luke, he found himself, he found instead a place where human reason even at its great and greatest and most noble, had been unable to go. The ancient philosophers of Greece, Rome, and the East were not stupid. They were some of the smartest, most perceptive, thoughtful people who have ever walked the earth. Their thinking is good. They are right that it's good to avoid being angry and to treat your own soul with kindness and care. And yet for each and every one of them, the idea that we should love our enemies would have been registered as self-evidently absurd. They might insist that we avoid having our souls poisoned by grudges, but the idea that we should love 
people who harm us would be ridiculous to them. Do you see what he's saying? He, he expected a cheap answer. And, and maybe as you read through this, to live as Christ, to die as gain. You know, it's been granted for you to suffer. Maybe some of you feel like th- these are cheap platitudes that the Bible has to offer. But when you really stop and you sit with them, like Keegan did, you realize that they are not cheap. Christ tells us to love our enemies, and later he shows us what this means. Hanging on the cross, in the process of being tortured and executed, Christ looks down on the people responsible for his death and prays to God to forgive them. He's not ridding himself of anger to achieve spiritual tranquility. He's not trying to restore the karmic balance of the universe. He's not trying to showcase his own virtue. His concern in the midst of his execution is for the good of those who have wronged him. And it is entirely for their sake that he utters this prayer of forgiveness. Keegan found something different when he found the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is a believer today. In Christ, we find the most lovely, the most meaningful, the one who offers nothing cheap, but offers his very self for your life, for your death, for your happiness, for your joy, no matter what you are called to suffer, no matter what you are going through at this moment, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for just the way it comes and and it rips us open in the way that a surgeon rips open a patient in order to operate in order that the heart may be saved, in order that the blockages might be removed, that the blood would flow, bringing life to our bodies. Father, we pray. Holy Spirit, we pray uh, that you would work in us this same confidence that Paul has to live as Christ, to die as gain. Only let this be the most important thing in our lives. And may our manner of life, our citizenship, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Until we reach that day when you call us home, uh, you call us uh, from here to there, where we will be always and forever with our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this all in His precious name. Amen. Let's